right. Hello. We're here in Stude looking at the big pile of dirt <laughs> behind Allie's house. <laughs> Real talk. There's some dirt behind my house because they're building another house back there. Um, right now it looks like a labyrinth. It does. Do you guys like think about going over there and like exploring? Oh, we do. We do <laughs> explore it. Uh, super dangerous. We let our children do it alone. We Perfect. don't care. Somebody's going to die. It'll be fine. Oh, that's ideal. Um, <laughs> did you see that Mora sent the official tattoo? No. Oh my gosh. That's so perfect. So Mora has designed, uh, um, you can find her at Indigo Lotus. Uh-huh. Uh, Mora on Instagram. Has, on Instagram. Mora has designed sibling tattoos for Allie and her siblings, mm-hmm. which is a level that I can't even, I like, <laughs> I'm close with my siblings you're married to one, but like not like that. I will freaking die without them. They're absurd. And I'm I'm so excited about it and um I can't wait to get that done. But they're beautiful. Because it's cool because so basically you guys are getting each of the four elements, because there are four of you. Right. And so you'll each have, you know, like what is it, wind, fire, fire, air, fire, earth. air, and earth. Um and no, wait, wait, water and earth. Water, Wind whatever it is. You know them. Avatar. Yeah. And uh, but each of you will have one of them like for the one you are colored in. Mm-hmm. So what are you fire? I'm fire. Okay, that's what I thought. Duh. That's what I thought. <laughs> is okay, so I'm gonna try and guess the other ones. Uh-huh. Is Marjorie water? She's wind. Wind. Okay. I, I thought wind or water. I said water. That's what I thought. But she said wind. Uh, well I guess Mark is water because yes. he likes the water and Mark is kayak water. and he like I remember that when he was buying his house, he's like, I need to be close to the water yeah. to like stay sane. And I also think it makes sense because Mark and I are as fire and water Ooh, are so opposite. Yes. Like it's the exact. Yeah. And then I feel like Eric makes sense as earth. earth. Yeah. Like it's an easy pick. Just like very like grounded, but also like can be crazy. Yeah. Like <laughs> can shake it up. First a burn, first yeah. born, you know, holds you the build ground. everything on top of that. Yeah. Uh, but we're not here base. to talk about my perfect <laughs> <No>! life. <laughs> We're here to talk about history on the rock with Katie and Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. And we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because a women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are not historians. <laughs> and we're drinking the entire time. We are. <laughs> Uh, and that's okay because sometimes you need to drink with some of these stories. Oh, absolutely. Mine is definitely one of them. Oh, mine's not. Mine's Mine fine. Is atrocious. Mine's fine today. Um, but you're super busy in your life. Me and Katie are going to tell two stories and mm-hmm. you're not going to have time to like Google it, see if it's real, see what the women look like. None of that nonsense. Nope. None of it. So we're going to describe what they look like. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? I am doing Christiane Amapour, who's amazing, but she is an Iranian woman who's currently in her early 60s. She has short, dark brown hair with a simple bang. She has deep brown eyes and powerful cheeks that are accentuated when she does like a pinched lip smile. Mm. She typically wears a power jacket accentuated by either like a simple necklace or some gold hoop earrings. Honestly, though, it's kind of interesting because there are so many pictures of her and she looks different in almost all of them. Really? It's just, it depends on the angle the picture is taken and how she's smiling. But there's yeah. so many different facial features I couldn't explain, but everybody's seen her, so it's fine. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Everybody knows what Christiana Amanpour looks like. And she's been, like, photographed, like, for years. Yeah. 
like doing, decades. Also, and, like doing insane things, like yeah. not in like a model way. Yeah, and in a wild journalist way. Yeah, she's got like <laughs> bombs exploding behind her right. in every she's like, picture. Like this is Christian Amanpour with a helicopter behind me, and you're like. <laughs> So sometimes her hair is flipped up into a frenzy. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's crazy. All right. Well, tonight I am doing Ada Blackjack. She is a petite Inupiat woman. Um, she is about five feet tall, weighing 100 pounds, but she often looks a lot bigger because she is typically wearing large fur parkas and boots. Um, even um, like because I mean, it's very cold because she is Native Alaskan. Um, and but in warmer weather, she preferred to wear dark blue suits, uh, but she would have to buy them from the children's section of the like. <laughs> local store because she was so small. Great. Um, her biographer describes her as pretty and unassuming with a good poker face. <laughs> pa, 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 poker face, pa, pa, poker face. Exactly. Um, yeah, and she's had dark hair, very like traditional, like Inuit features. Perfect. Like, yeah, that's what she looked like. Awesome. <laughs> Are you ready? I'm so ready. So I know what you're drinking. So this is called Real Talk. Ooh, okay. And it's kind of a take on like a journalist cocktail. I think I did something similar when I did Barbara Walters, yeah. but I took it in a different direction. Mm-hmm. So it's three-fourths ounces of gin, a fourth of an ounce of dry vermouth, a fourth of an ounce of sweet vermouth, a fourth of an ounce of orange carousel or any orange liqueur. Fourth of an ounce of lemon juice, a dash of bitters, and a two quarters of a lime. Oh my gosh. I love it. So many things going on. Cheers. Mmm. It's really interesting. Yeah. Like, it kind of like feels like water coming in and then your palate's trying to make sense of all of the things in it. It's like you're <laughs> ping, pong, ping ponging about in yeah. the drink. The bitters hit nicely. I, yeah. I've never tasted bitters like so directly in a drink. Yeah. It's like that's definitely mm. uh, the kick of the drink is the is the bitters on mm. the top. I really like it. Mm. Well, mm. it's real talk. <laughs> so can you tell me what you know about Christiana Amanpour? Okay. I know that she was obviously Rory Gilmore's number one idol. <laughs> um, she appeared in one episode, the finale of Gilmore Girls. <laughs> uh, I know that she is like a traveling foreign correspondent journalist type person, and that's why Roy wanted to be like her. Um, and that's pretty much it. Like, I don't really know exactly where she's been. I feel like she's been all over. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you could, like, but I feel like she often covers like situations in like the Middle East specifically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but that's all I know. Well, great. We're going to talk about how Rory Gilmore is nothing like her because she's a failure. <laughs> I have never hated a protagonist more in my life. I so disappointed. Believable. So disappointed. Because the whole thing is, okay, I know we've probably talked about this before and we don't need to talk about it now, but the, we always need to talk about the, it. The reboot was so upsetting for Rory because like if she had been doing that kind of bullshit her first year out of college it would have made sense I would have been like okay she's a mess everybody is when they graduate college but she was 10 years past like there was no excuse for that Mm-mm. and I for such a go-getter it. she was such a go-getter well that was the whole problem with the quit? yeah that was the whole problem with the reboot was they were writing Rory and Lorelai as if they were one year past the series and it's like, so she's a mess. And then, like, Luke and Lorelai trying to, like, have a baby. I'm like, you guys are in, like, your 50s. Not that you can't have a baby in your 50s. But, like, you haven't even talked about it. And you've been together for, like, 
15 years? It was a, it was an absurd reboot. The only person with a decent storyline was Emily because mm. they had to rewrite her because what's his face died. I feel like I feel like Jess did fine. Oh, well, I mean, he's always doing all <laughs> He's always doing he great. Logan's always trash. <laughs> I, love, I love Logan. Okay, this okay, is not the point. Okay, girls here in the corner. Now back to business. Okay. Now back to real talk. Real talk. <laughs> Christiane Amanpour was born in West London on January 12th, 1958. So she's like just about the age of our parents. Her dad's name is Muhammad Taji and her mom's name was Patricia Ann Amanpour. So she took her mom's That's cool. last name. Her father was Muslim and her mother was Catholic. And wow, her, what yeah, a pairing. It was serious pairing. <laughs> but her father had been born in Tehran and Christiane was actually raised there until she hmm. was lever. So, until she was 11. So she lived in Iran for her formative childhood years, even though she was born in London. Oh, wow. Okay. So when she, she's also, because of that, a native fluent English speaker. So she can speak English um, from the time she's born. Or I guess two. I don't know when kids speak. (laughs) After completing most of her primary school in Iran, her parents sent her to a boarding school in England, as most people do, when they're like 11 years old. And she attended an all-girls Roman Catholic boarding school for the remainder of her secondary schooling years. After finishing high school, she goes back to Iran for several years and lives with her family. But she says, like, in that time, she... Living in a country amongst, you know, the majority of Muslim women, she was never oppressed or treated differently Mm -hmm. for being a woman, never a second class citizen until the Islamic revolution began. And then shit's going to start hitting the fan. So her entire family returns to England. She's about 20-ish years old. And she stressed many times that her family was not forced to leave Iran, but they chose to go willingly because of the Iraq-Iran war. But the family decided to go, but also she's related to, like, the Imperial Irani General of the Air Force, and he was executed, (sighs) and other people in her family are, like, nobility, and, like, some of it's through marriage, but... Her, her loyalties tend to be, obviously, with her family. Right, yeah. Um, and even some of them are, you know, by marriage. But it it seems that they left willingly, but knowing that it could be bad for them if they stayed. Yeah. So that's kind of hard. Yeah. More like a pressure to leave, not yeah. a demand to leave. Right. That's kind of how it feels. Like, you kind of know that feeling of like, oh, this probably isn't going to be safe. <laughs> And she says that living through these first-hand experiences made her want to be a journalist. She's like, I know this is what I want to write about because I don't think the rest of the world sees it the way I see it. Mm -hmm. So um, in her early adult years, she moves to the United States to study journalism at the University of Rhode Island. During her time in college, she worked in the news department for WBRU-FM and then worked as an electronic graphic designer for NBC Rhode Island. So she's already in with NBC. That's the first big name. So keep track because she's going to hit all of them. And in 1983, she graduated summa cum laude from the University of Rhode Island with a BA in journalism. Hmm. And at that time, journalism was a man's field. And she says, I didn't really fit the mold. I wasn't the girl they wanted on the, like, main screen. I wasn't blonde. I didn't have blue eyes. I didn't have perfect teeth. You know, I'm not the correspondent girl. 
And somebody came to her and was like, well, I think I heard somebody um, at this place with an English accent. Like you might be able to get in there just by being kind of like foreign or like interesting. <laughs> yeah. So she gets hired by CNN to work on the foreign desk in Georgia as an entry level assistant. Okay. And she's like, I was the coffee girl. I was nothing. Oh my God. In the state of Georgia. <laughs> I, like, I'm so nervous for her. I know it already happened and she's already lived through it, but I'm like, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> like, I just graduated. I've lived in Iran. I've lived in England and now I'm in Peaches, Georgia. <laughs> oh my God. Getting coffee for people. I can't even imagine. No. But during her early years as a correspondent, she gets assigned to her first big story to cover. And, of course, it's on the Iran-Iraq war because she has experience. Mm -hmm. This led to her being transferred in 1986 to Eastern Europe to report on the fallout of communism. A big cry from coffee. Wow. Big transfer. Like. All of a sudden, go to Eastern Europe and report on the fall of communism. Thanks. Wow. In 1986, that's like before the Berlin Wall comes down. She's like touting around. I, what a leap. I mean, also, I'm just going to say again, because I cannot help myself, but like, I feel like she probably did the thing that Roy is criticized for not doing of like, hey, I want to, like, I'm here for it. Like, I'll do I can it. do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Instead of just. Sitting idly by. She um, wasn't approving Huntsberger's dad. Screw you, Huntsberger. Which is true. He's um, my nemesis. Like, shit, like a, who? A nemesis. A nemesis. Are you Spider-Man? <laughs> yeah. And uh, from there, she ends up getting a gig that really kind of changes her life in Frankfurt, Germany, to cover the democratic revolutions that are sweeping across Europe. So she's in Frankfurt, in Germany, doing all of this. In doing these high-profile overseas news stories, they're like, you know what? We're done with Georgia. We're sending you to New York. What? <laughs> Big city. You're going to be the correspondent. I mean, she's grinding. I oh know my I'm, I'm kind of breezing over it, but she is grinding. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. What, like, what a hard worker to, like, be able to make those strides early on. Because also, like, you're right. She's not, like, like... I know we have probably a lot of young, pretty blonde listeners, but like, you know, women like that tend to be able to get ahead a little bit easier, but like for a foreign Iranian woman, like (laughs) that's hard. Yeah. Like you have to be like undeniably good to be able to keep getting promotions in a position like hers. You do. And it's interesting because she just, anything I read about her, it doesn't talk about the battle or the fight or people turning her down or this, that, or the other. She does openly talk about working in a man's field and why it's important to her. But like the details I'm giving you are what exists. Right. Yeah. It's like, this is it friends. Um, so there's not a lot. Is there any type of like biography about her? No, she's done a couple like longer, um, speeches about her life on YouTube that are like an hour long or like, you know, my life as a, you know, female Middle Eastern journalist or whatever, but not, there's not enough yet where it's like, we're going to like totally glorify her life. Right. Um, even though there's like articles and stuff about her, right. she's the one writing the articles and she hasn't written about herself in okay. that way. Um, okay. So following the Iraqi occupation of Kuwait, her reports on, uh, the Persian Gulf, uh, brought her wide notice and gain her like a new level of ratings for CNN because she is just like in the thick of it. Like we said earlier, she is like 
bombs going off behind her on the news reporting about the war. So in the 90s, there is a large amount of ethnic warfare taking place in Bosnia and Serbia, Herzegovina, the, the peninsula right above Greece. We've mm-hmm. talked about this before on the podcast, the Serbian conflict. Just briefly, it's the Serbs, the Muslims, the Bosnians, the Croats, the Albanians, the Turks. We're like all kind of mixed together in here. In which any non-Serb that stood in the way of their territorial ambitions were enacted upon with an ethnic cleansing. Like, you can't go to our schools, you can't have jobs here, you can't have houses, you need to leave the community. So much so that the Serbs start bombing communities of people that are not in the ethnic variety that they want. So she is in Sarajevo, uh, and, you know, month by month, this city is under siege from bombings. There are snipers, there's war, the citizens are being terrorized because they're trying to rid the area totally of um, the Muslims, the Croats, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. it's very rough. Um. The only way that people in the city could leave the city is, like, by running out through, like, a hail of gunfire. Oh, my God. So, it's not a good situation. So, Christiana delivers a very emotional and passionate news story about this conflict. And she gets criticized. um, Because she is criticizing the Serbs and accusing them of very specific things. And many people start to critique her the same way that like Jane Goodall got critiqued for like, this is exactly what's happening. Mm -hmm. And people are like, uh, it's not very scientific of you to say it that way. That's what they're doing to her. It's not very journalistic or objective of you to say it that way. How can you know that that's what actually happened? Did you actually see it with your own eyes? And people start to just say that she is unjustly favoring the Bosnian Muslims. Like discrediting her. Right. And looking into her background, like your dad's Muslim. Obviously, you're going to favor the Muslims in this war. And she says, there are some situations one simply cannot be neutral about. Because when you are neutral, you are an accomplice. Objectivity does not mean treating all sides equally. It means giving each side a hearing. Mm. Damn. Yeah. Real talk. (laughs) Real talk. Real talk. (laughs) Let me tell you what I think. We've never said the name of the cocktail so much. (laughs) Real talk. Um, And, you know, it's important because I do believe journalists deserve an opinion. Yeah, I, I do, like I'm obviously against news that is biased, but you also know what you're getting into with certain journalism journalists yeah. and certain stations and like certain articles, you know, who's producing it. Yeah. So just it, they're they're human people. Yeah. It's hard to be objective about ethnic cleansing. Right. <laughs> Murder. <laughs> Disgrace. <laughs> um. So, from 1992 to 2010, she was a CNN chief international correspondent, as well as an anchor of the show Amanpour, a daily CNN. She had a show? About herself. Uh, Like, still does. She's, like, shows all over the place. Um, And she's a daily CNN. It's, like, an interview program. And she became famous for these hotspot interviews, and that's exactly what they wanted from her. She interviewed... Um, in, like, world leaders in Iraq, Afghanistan, Palestine, Iran, Israel, Pakistan, Somalia, Rwanda, the Balkans, the United States during Hurricane Katrina. 
she did in this time get married to James Rubin, who was a former, he's like a big politician in the U.S. He like worked for Hillary Clinton and stuff, so he's hmm. kind of cool. Um, they fell in love, they say, over margaritas while they were working together in Bosnia. So what a meet you. The best things <laughs> happen over tequila. I... <laughs> I would argue that. Uh, I think it, I think I'm so partial because that was the only thing that Casey and I drank in the beginning of our courtship. Okay. We would literally go to the liquor store and get the same and we were drinking like expensive tequila. I don't know who we fucking thought we were. We were buying like $30 bottles of tequila on Don the Juan. regular. You thought you were Don Juan. I did, we did. We thought we were like in the movie Desperados or yeah, something. Yeah, but now you're never not. seen that movie, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course. So, I think Salma Hayek's in it. Perhaps. <laughs> Do I know actors? No. No. <laughs> In the middle of all of this, she's not only working for CNN, she's also working for 60 Minutes, um, and her interviews begin to become legendary. And, you know, it it's people like Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, Gaddafi, the Dalai Lama, um, and, um, Arafat, you know, who famously hung up on her because she uh, was like being too hard on uh, him in the interview. He was like, be quiet and hung up the phone. There you go. Which is great. Um, after 9-11, she was even the first international correspondent to interview Tony Blair, who was at the time the prime minister of great or the United Kingdoms and also the presidents of France and Pakistan. Mm. So it's like people are picking up the phone for her when she's going to do an interview. She felt that it was important to dig deeper into some tragedies that she had reported on. So she began to create a whole bunch of documentaries about other people, never about herself. So she created one documentary called Where Have All the Parents Gone, which focuses on children orphaned in Kenya due to AIDS. She created a documentary called In the Footsteps of Bin Laden and the War Within, and they're both on Islamic unrest in the United Kingdoms, and one called God's Warriors, which was a six-hour series dealing with the defenders of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Mm. Deep stuff. Very deep stuff. She's like a not letting anybody get away with anything. <laughs> <laughs> I, she is so the opposite of my personality where like I like to avoid conflict at all costs. It's like, what like, if I, let <laughs> me get in the middle of it. <laughs> she's like, what if I post something and it offends someone? And she's like, let me offend someone. <laughs> Immediately. <laughs> she's so brave yeah in 2010 something astonishing happened after working for 27 years for nbc she left for a position at abc oh so now she's worked at nbc at cnn and now she's at abc where she becomes an anchor of a show called this week so she's there we go uh, she said she'd miss her family at NBC, but hosting a show like this week was a great honor, and she couldn't wait to talk about domestic and international affairs, of course. But in the first two weeks, the ratings dropped big. Mm. And I think a lot of times people are more uncomfortable on TV listening to female journalists. I yeah. just think there's that idea that, like, women are shrill, and their opinion is not worth it. Yeah. And so a lot of times ratings drop. I think that happened to Katie Couric when yeah. she went to the um, evening news. So 
she works for ABC for two years, but then ABC and NBC strike this deal so they can share her. They're like, can we kind of have her back some of the time? <laughs> and so she would host a show on CNN International Global Affairs and then also anchor the show for ABC News. She, you know, CNN is also trying to lure her back in the midst of all this, and they actually give her a new interview show and bump Pierce Morgan's show. Ooh, good. Yeah. <laughs> he deserves that to be bumped. <laughs> yeah, they bump him back to midnight and she gets the nine o'clock slot. Love it. Great. One important thing about Christiane is that she is and remains very opinionated and unashamed about it. In 2013, she criticized the Obama administration for their lack of action in Syria. She's like, no, the dictator, Assad, is poison bombing the people in the country. We saw it on the television and we're doing nothing. Right. This is our plan. Well, and that's why we need people to call people's bullshit no matter, like, you know, but like, like, I think that's such an important thing to note of, like, yeah, I voted for him, and I'm going to call him on his fucking bullshit. Like, right. he's not doing anything about that, and he should be. Like, it's like, we all watched people choke to death on poison gas in the streets, and you're telling me we're just going to hang? Right. Yeah. It's like, Flint doesn't have clean water, and we're still not doing anything about it, and we're just, again, we're just going to hang out and, like, ignore it? Like, what the fuck? Yeah, like, think of all the plastic bottles they're using. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, on top of the unclean water they're going to right. die from. Oh, my gosh. It's like, it, but I do think that is so necessary to have those people to, like, hold leaders accountable. Because sure. every leader fucks up in one way or another. Right. And, like, yeah, we should call them out every single fucking time. Mm-hmm. Agree. Agree. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> so in 2015, she came up as a woman of controversy again <laughs> because she referred to Islamic extremists on breaking news as activists. Oh. So it didn't seem like it was planned like that. So this was after the French satire newspaper. Remember that from 2015? Somebody came up and shot like all the journalists. <gasps> I do remember that. Oh my gosh. I forgot block that out of my brain but yeah she said and i don't necessarily think this quote was too bad but i do understand how using activist instead of extremist is a poor choice of words and your job is to be a journalist so yeah yeah those words right so she said on this day these activists found their targets and their targets were journalists this was a clear attack on the freedom of expression on the press and on satire so it's like she's saying what happened but I don't know, maybe the word terrorist would have been better. Like right. it feels like she's adding levity to like just like even like a, a tiny dollop of like levity to like a really horrifying situation. Right. And after the Bosnian conflict and people accusing her for siding with Muslims right. in the nineties, it seemed like and also, let me be perfectly clear, Muslim people are not terrorists. No. These are just two events that and and in the nineties the Muslim people were being terrored upon. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So like um I, it's just something that is so thick in her story because she grew up in a Muslim country and was raised by a Muslim father. Right. So people in the Any United chance States, they get to right. criticize her for it, they take. Right. Yeah. They're like, this is obviously the thing that we can pick out on you. Right, yeah. That's an issue. Um, so in 2018, of course, um, 
you can't round out a good news career without a little bit of time on PBS. <laughs> <laughs> she gets her se- herself on PBS after Charlie Rose left due to sexual misconduct allegations. So she replaces him for the company. And then she and her husband, James, who had lived back and forth between Manhattan and London over the years after 20-some years of marriage, decide to divorce in 2018. Uh, Christian officially relocated to London permanently, but they still appear, they have a son together, uh, an only child son. They appear together at events with him, like mm-hmm. his graduation. Like they both say that they're good friends and it was just, I mean, over. that relationship must be so stressful. Yeah. They're I mean, both journalists. He's a politician. Yeah. You know, like working for Hillary Clinton this is not an easy gig either of them have. No. And that's what I kind of can appreciate about like people like that. They're like, let's call it quits together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not possible for a lot of people. And yeah. like, I'm glad that they were able to do that because yeah. that they both lead such stressful lifestyles that yeah, sometimes are not the most conducive to a healthy relationship. Right. Mm. But of course she's got a lot to say about Trump. Ah! <laughs> she's, she was outspoken about Trump's accusations of fake news on journalists saying that it is incredible that through all these years, She's seen this in other countries, but not in the United States. She wanted to neutralize the idea that media is the enemy of the people by saying, no, we're the best friends of the people. We serve the public. Right. We're going and finding the information and feeding it to them. Mm -hmm. But she also got in a little bit of trouble again for a little bit of a misspeak uh, when she referred to Trump encouraging the insurrection against the Capitol as the same as Nazi Germany and Kristallnacht. Ooh. Which the... the I don't Jew- know that story. Okay, so it was like Kristallnacht or the Night of Broken Glass was like the first night oh, okay. that like the Nazis were like breaking into people's Jewish businesses and like dragging people from their homes and like it was like one of the like sparking points yeah um but the the israeli government and other jewish groups have asked her to apologize and saying that you are belittling the immense tragedy of the holocaust right now i can see what she's going for that it's like if we don't stop this now it just gets worse right but also it's a like it's very hard to compare someone like trump to hitler just because we don't have that hindsight yet. Yeah. Well, and it also feels like she's trying to correct her things from the past of like, oh, I added too much levity with my language before. So now I'm going to like make this a really grave statement of like, this is what is in store. But it does feel like you're then belittling the thing from the past that was like, it is like different, you know, like they definitely like are both linked in white supremacy. Right. Like, we cannot ignore that. Um, you know, in this weird Aryan, whatever the fuck it is, disgustingness, but you know, it is like, yeah, it, it, it is hard when your life is speaking. Well, and that's what I kind of like about her is that like, she shows us a journalist that speaks her mind all the time. So she does misspeak. And like, and again, like, I think it it's happens. important to criticize people and like, you know, or like talk about it. Like it opens up discussions. I'm like, like, yeah, we need to talk about, should we be comparing Trump to Hitler? What are the downfalls of that? What are the benefits? What's going on here? What is the bigger picture? Right. And I think also, like, it's just, it's hard in general to compare anything to the Holocaust because now we know so much about it. And it was yeah. the largest genocide 
tragedy in human history. Yeah. So it's just, re- it's really difficult but also it renders passion in people when you oh, say yeah. it mm-hmm. so much so that it's almost like an adjective yeah which I, I do agree with them then that does belittle yeah it a little bit by making an adjective so I just thought it was an interesting part of her story no that it she is kinda, absolutely she misspeaks and then she just goes for it so mm-hmm. um she has been working for the PBS program that she still does in London all throughout COVID from her home in 2020. And her show shows up in a variety of places in the U.S. and England. Her popularity around the world and on multiple news stations has made her a staple in representing journalism in the fictional world as well. Having Christiane Amanpour make uh, an appearance on your movie or in your show places your fictional world in real life. So, like we said earlier, she is in the episode, the final episode, Bon Voyage, of the Gilmore Girls, being a constant influence to character Rory Gilmore. She's also appeared in films such as Iron Man 2 and Pink Panther. Hmm. Just on the news. You know, you need a news Steve Martin Beyonce vehicle? (laughs) She just needs to be in the background on the TV for people to take it seriously. And I think that says a lot about her. I like, never thought about Yeah. It's like, okay, if I'm going to say that Iron Man, the movie, is happening, I need somebody I trust on the TV to prove to me that this fictional world is real. And she's the guidepost for that, <laughs> which is so interesting. She's very outspoken about women's rights. If you look her up on YouTube, she speaks about this very regularly and about how women fit into society. She says, we live in a male-dominated world, and I had done multiple reporting in male-dominated countries in a male-dominated career and we need women to use their economic leverage she calls on women to start as a desk clerk if you have to and move your way up she says that we should publish everyone's salary so that nobody can bullshit around anymore she says that there should be a quota for how many women your business has to hire and she says i know that's extreme but shit's not changing so let's fix it She also says that women have been written out of history, and even though they are the storytellers, women are ignored, and it's better for boys and girls if we can tell stories. She does have a son, and it's very important to her that he sees her as a strong career reporter and as a woman, because that is just as big of a part as feminism as other girls seeing her as that. Mm. She has won, like, in the teens of Emmys, four Peabody Awards, a variety of honorary doctors. She's some sort of something of the British Empire. (laughs) She's in the Cable Reporting Hall of Fame. And she is just the journalist of my day. Yes, she really is. And that is so far the story of Christiane Amanpour. Incredible. Just someone who, like, I could never do her job, but I like that... Someone's doing it. Someone's fucking doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Nice job, Christian. (laughs) All right. Well, we're going to get a couple more drinks and be back with another story. Okay. Welcome to Hashtag History. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And if you're a history nerd or even a history hater, this is the podcast for you. 
Even if history was your least favorite subject in school, we can guarantee you will like this podcast because we talk about all the things that your history textbooks did not. Things like how the Bonnie Prince Charles and his Jacobite uprising was a bit of a disaster. Yeah, or how the pharaoh Akhenaten was so disliked by Egyptians that they literally purged his name from nearly all of their records and pretended like he had never existed. And we do all of this while drinking and rating a custom-made cocktail specific to that week's topic. So grab a drink, take a seat, and hang out with us each week as we learn all about history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and and corruption. corruption. So we are back with what looks like <laughs> a gem of a drink. It's one of our more like beautiful cocktails and it looks exactly how I pictured it. Like, do you ever like picture the cocktail in your head and then you make it and you're like, wow, that looks way different and terrible. Every week. <laughs> <laughs> and this one, I was like, I just want. Like a white glacier coming out of a green lagoon. Looks perfect. And that's how it looks. So it, does, it looks great. <laughs> I'm really excited about it. It Ugh. it brings me back to memories of the grasshopper cocktail. Yes. Sitting in the hot, hot back living room of the old house yep. upstairs before any studio existed at all. Before any studio. Um Do you ever think about <laughs> what you were doing when you were researching certain women in history, because that happens to me sometimes. So I'll be like, oh, when I got in that car accident, I was definitely researching Merit Patah. Like, I do not. Oh, I'll be like, when I was painting I feel like that my room, memory is blank. Oh, really? Yes. Oh my gosh. I'll be like, okay, when I painted that room, I was editing the Boudicca episode. Because <laughs> it's just like always on in my life. Guys, oh this is a problem. Gosh. Okay. I need to taste this cocktail. So tell okay. me what it is. So this is called the Ice Elation. <laughs> And it's a really simple drink. It is an ounce of creme de menthe, two ounces of vanilla vodka. You shake that up together and you pour it over a big scoop of vanilla ice cream and you garnish it with just a little bit of mint. Um, And then you want to just like stir up that, like, you know, you definitely need to stir with a spoon. Um, But stir up that ice cream just a little bit so the whole drink gets really creamy and delicious. Okay. All right. Cheers. Cheers. I'm going to be spilling tonight. (laughs) It tastes like a mint Mint, mudslide. Mint chocolate chip ice cream, yeah. Yep. Oh my gosh. And there's no chocolate or anything in it. No, but... mm. I just wanted it to be like really light and delicious, but creamy, because this is a really terrible, horrifying story. Yo, you could Um, put um, (laughs) chocolate shavings on top if you wanted. Oh, you could, absolutely. If you're a big mint chocolate chip ice cream fan. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, we haven't, we don't use creme de menthe very often. I was Mm -hmm. like, you know what? I'm really in the mood for it because it's hot, hot, hot here right now. Um, and yeah, I'm really so excited. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much for this drink. Yeah. So what do you know about Ada Blackjack? I mean, I know that she's native to Alaska. I don't know anything about her. Like I, I assume the, I assume the name Ada Blackjack means that she is a gambler or card player slash dealer or in some way can keep her face stoic for some reason. I see why you think that because I absolutely use the word poker face, but but not... that's what I would have assumed. Yeah, even with just the word blackjack. Oh yeah, definitely. But, but is that just like her name? Yeah, that was just like the last name of her first husband. That's insane. <laughs> okay, tell me about her life. I don't know anything about her life. Perfect. Okay, so I want to give credit to the dollop 
and disaster area to podcasts that covered her because her Wikipedia page is so short for this eight fucking page story I'm about to tell you. Damn. Um, and an Atlas Obscura article written by Tessa Hulls. So I just want to give them a shout out because they obviously did all the legwork on this. <laughs> um, okay, so Ada Delatuck was born in 1898 in the remote town of Spruce Creek, Alaska, near an area called Nome, which is now called Solomon. Um, it's all north of the Arctic Circle, so it's very cold. You know, it's Alaska, um, <laughs> as I said. Uh, she and her family were Inupiat, which is a group of first Alaska people who are from the area of Alaska, kind of near the Bering Strait. So Ada had a typical... Inupiat childhood until she was eight years old and disaster struck her little family. So while her mother was away, Ada's father ate some bad meat and got really, really sick. And Ada and her little sister tried to save him by bundling him up. They put him on a sled and they tried walking him the eight miles to Nome, which was the closest city to them, which was like an old, like gold rush mining town. Like, and they got about halfway there when he died on the sled alone with his daughters. And then they're like, well, no use taking him to Nome now. So they just turned around and walked back to Spruce Creek to wait for their mother. I mean, hey, just, at least you didn't just sit around oh and do gosh, nothing. I know. Because I would have been, like, paralyzed by fear. Oh, absolutely. Instead of, like, getting up and getting to it. Oh, absolutely. I would, I, yeah, I would have frozen completely. Um, <laughs> frozen. Frozen. <laughs> Because you're in Alaska. So, since this left Ada's family without a breadwinner, her mother couldn't care for her two children, so she made the unfortunate decision to send Ada away to live with Methodist missionaries living in Nome. So, even though Ada was born and partially raised in Nupiat, because of this big move, she never actually got a chance to learn any of the tribal skills that, like, most children did. Hmm. So instead of learning how to hunt or gather food and skin animals and, like, make a boat, she was taught to read and write English, you know, but for the purpose of reading the Bible. You know, it's good that she learned how to do that. But, you know, and then she learned how to sew and clean and cook. Um, and it was all so she could one day dream of working as a domestic servant for a white family. That was, like, the purpose of this education. Mm. So when Ada was 16, she married a name named <laughs> married a man named Jack Blackjack. That is 100% his name. Uh, he was a local dog sled musher who, surprise, surprise, is not the best husband. He was a severe alcoholic who would beat her often and even starve her. And they would have three children together, but only one survived infancy. Um, and even he, so he's the oldest son, his name is Bennett and he is still very sickly. Like he has tuberculosis basically like his whole fucking life. Um, so life is obviously not great for the little family. And then Jack Blackjack just decides that he's done with the whole thing. So he takes Ada and Bennett 40 miles out onto the ice and leaves them. In the hopes that they'll just die out in the frozen wilderness. He's just getting rid of them. Literally just getting rid of them. He's like, I'm not, like, really into, like, outright killing you, but I'll let you die out here. But as we will find out later on, Ada doesn't give up very easily. So she starts walking back. But Bennett is five years old with tuberculosis. So Ada has to carry him 
on her back for most of the time. And it's like five is a weird age because they're like big and heavy, but like they can't like walk 40 miles. Like they're little, like, you know, it's like, so like too big to carry too small to walk. Like it's a horrible situation, but thankfully they both survive. They make it back to town and she obviously divorces this asshole or like whatever, like their version of it was so like, they never like, you know, like it was just like the tribal, like kind of a way of doing it. So right. like they didn't have to do like paperwork or anything. Um, but now she's found herself in the exact same position as her mother had just all those years ago, a single mother with no money, but to make matters worse, Bennett's tuberculosis is getting worse. So Ada, like her mother made the really difficult decision of putting her only surviving child in an orphanage just until she could save up enough money to bring him home and take him to a hospital to get treatment. She's like, at least I know you'll be under care. You'll have a warm bed. You'll have food. Like, I know you'll be okay here. So just like, hold on. And her luck is about to change. Um, she thought for the better, but we'll get into that. <laughs> so there is a man named Wilhelmer Stephenson, and he was only going to bring disaster into Ada's life. So Stephenson was born William Anderson in 1879 in Manitoba, Canada, but he changed his name in order to fulfill his lifelong passion of being a famous explorer. He literally was just like, Mm, I need like more of like a European sounding fun name rather than Bill Anderson. <laughs> well, my daughter did. So fine. <laughs> Change your name if you want. Right. So, um, and so he changes his name. Um, and <laughs> he just wants to explore the world, but for the sole purpose of being famous, which means that he doesn't really like plan or care for things the way like, you know, maybe we say like Ann Daniels does, perfection incarnate. Um, and he's had his eyes set on one thing. He wants to explore and claim a tiny island off of the coast of Russia in the Arctic Ocean called Wrangel Island. Okay. Imperialism at its finest. I know. He's a little late for it. I mean, it's okay. He'll manage. <laughs> He'll get so, there. So this is a 2,800 square foot mile. No. Island. 2,800 square, square foot mile island. island. <laughs> that has some of the toughest terrain out is there. Is it like Oak Island? It, pretty much. <laughs> um, it is basically frozen shit and frozen mountains. I mean, it's literally where the last mammoths went to die. So it's not very inhabitable. Oh, do we know that? Yeah. That's incredible. That's like what it's famous for. Oh. And the disaster. That's so it was happen. in like Ice Age? Mm-hmm. But Stephenson always wanted it. Maybe he thought it was just going to be easy. Who just like, always wants an island? Yeah, I know. <laughs> just like go there and plant a flag and go down in history books. Like he is looking for the easiest way to be famous. And he's like colonizing an island like absolutely. <laughs> um, and he also strongly felt that like he's like if we just get up there and colonize this, then we can finally find the continent that's at the top of the world. It's like it's actually just ice. But, like, if you want to call it a continent again, whatever. But it's not. Um, now, here's the funny thing. He obviously needs some support to do this. So he went to Canada and Great Britain, and he was like, how would you like to colonize a tiny island in a frozen wasteland completely unsuitable for human life today? Uh, Canada said, no, thanks. We have enough frozen shit here. Great Britain was like, nah, we're more 
into like colonizing places with a population to enslave. Um, so we're gonna pass two. We want to be able to grow some things as well. Yeah. Oh, we um. Some... Yeah, it's just not really our vibe natural up resource. There. We're a natural. Yeah, we're resource. more of like a southern colonizer. Right. 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 Um. <laughs> Uh, but he was determined. He was like, I'm going to settle that island some way, somehow. <laughs> you might be wondering, how in the world did he even get interested in this tiny little island in the first place? Well, in order to get a full picture of what a the piece of shit this guy is. It's like... <laughs> so we need to talk about his first expedition. So I know that we're talking about Ada, but we have to talk about this guy, but he's, he's the absolute villain in this story. So... A, a nemesis, 19, per yeah. se? A nemesis? <laughs> Absolutely. Is he a nemesis? <laughs> My nemesis. So in 1913, he was actually in charge of an Arctic exploration that consisted of three ships, the Carluck, the Mary Sachs, and the Alaska. The main ship was the Carluck, so that's the one he was on. But just about a month into the journey, the ship gets stuck in ice. Stefan's like, wow, like this is not good. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to take a couple of guys. And he just tells them, like, hang tight. We're going to get food for you. And we're going to get help. I promise. And, of course, he has his fingers tied behind his back. He's totally abandoning these guys out in the Arctic. And he hmm. does not come back for them. <laughs> That's not kind. No, it's not. <laughs> the ship just keeps floating with the ice. So they can't move on their own, just going wherever the ice takes them for five months. They're a literal berg. Yeah. And unfortunately, the end result is not the boat becoming dislodged. No, no. The ice eventually overwhelms the ship and crushes it, sinking the boat in the Arctic. And obviously, it's kind of a slow sink, so the crew does get off. But they scatter across the ice, and they like don't know where they're going, and they don't know what to do. So 25 crew members are now stranded in the Arctic without a boat for another six months. And also, okay, are they going to find this boat later? Is this how this story gets famous? Do we know this? So because, okay, is that what's going to happen? This is literally just the precursor for Stephenson. This part has nothing really, like Ada doesn't go find this boat. Interesting, because it's it's how National Treasure starts. Oh, you're right. When they're oh my there, God. getting like a boat out of the water. And I was like, is this a common thing? Apparently it is. Apparently, yes. Apparently you lose a boat in the Arctic and then people dig it up later and then become millionaires. There we go. I always knew it. The Aurelia. That's the name uh, of it. In- wow. I like how you don't know any celebrity <laughs> names. But None. you can pick out that. That's okay, listen, it's because of Nick Cage. <laughs> <laughs> The Aurelia. The way Allie's he says number one it, celeb. It's the way he says it. Certain mm. people's ticks stick in my brain. He's like, I the Aurelia. I'm like, oh, I hate you so much, but I love this movie. So anyway, yes, okay. I picked the wrong things to remember, and it's not <laughs> my fault. Okay. So four of the survivors made their way to Harold Island, but eventually die there. Okay. Um, four more died while trying to reach a different Arctic island. So sorry, so sad. And the remaining members of the expedition, under command of a man named Captain Bartlett, made their way to Wrangell Island, Ooh. where three more of them died. Mm. Okay. Um, this but is a tragedy. <laughs> it's a really tragedy. sad. This is a tragedy. This is pre-tragedy too. Oh, okay. We're gonna get to the big one. So Bartlett and his Inuk hunter, uh, Katoktavik made their way across the sea ice to Siberia to get help. So 
They eventually... Just like during Pangea. Exactly. <laughs> so they eventually did get rescued, but in total, I mean, 11 people died. And Terrible. And only 14 survived, and like just fucking barely. And one of these survivors was a, named, was a man named Fred Marr, who, like the others, was pretty pissed at Stephenson for abandoning them all to die. How could you not be? But all Stephenson could think of was like, wow, so there's a little island that men can survive on in the Arctic. And if men can survive on it, maybe we can colonize it. So that was all just to say how he, like, got interested in Wrangell Island because I think it's such a horrible story. And, like, he should have been held accountable. <laughs> and he I just can't. never is! <laughs> that, that's an absurd way to be interested in a piece of land. I know. I did kill 11 people, but a couple of them survived in this one place. So... I he's seeing all these as like green flags when he should be seeing them as red flags. No, we should all be seeing him yeah, as yeah. red flags. He, <laughs> he's he the red flag. We should be giving him cards like in soccer. Red card. Mm. You 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 lose for that. That's right. bad. You should bench. absolutely be in timeout. You have to go to a two minute. What's it in hockey? You have to go in your penalty something penalty box. box the penalty box. Two minutes. Mm. Power play for everybody cool. else in the world. <laughs> um. So he starts getting a crew together to explore Wrangell Island. Crew, crew, crew. Um, <laughs> and even though he almost killed poor Fred Marr, Fred Marr signs up to be a part of the team. He's like, you yeah, know, you almost killed me once in the Arctic, but you know what? How many times can that happen? Yo, Fred Marr would, though. He's 28. The other <laughs> members of this Arctic expedition Freddie include Eddie Marr. Mm-hmm, Alan Crawford, who's 20, Lorne Knight, 28, and Milton Gale, 19. These are babies. Little tiny babies. But they know that they need some Inuit people to help them along the journey since it's like their fucking land and they can survive. <laughs> so the call goes out that they are specifically looking for a First Nation seamstress who speaks English. To come with them on the journey, and it will pay quite well. $50 a month. And they're kind of looking around, and someone is like, have you heard of Ada Blackjack? She's a seamstress who's Inupiat, who speaks English. Bingo! So she's a seamstress! They approach Ada, and she's like, fuck. Also, this is, can I pause? This yes. is our second Ada. It's been years. Our second episode was Ada Lovelace. Oh my gosh, you're right. We are just back around. Uh, that was a great name, though. That was in 2018. Can you believe <laughs> that? That was four years ago oh. that we recorded the episode oh about Ada like that. We're oh old, 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 old ladies. That's unbelievable. I know. Um, so she hears us and she's like, fuck, that's so much more money than I'm making right now. And, like, if I could just make it this journey, they say it'll just be a year. I'll definitely have enough money to get my kid back. So she starts talking to people, and she's like, what do you think? Should I do this? She goes to her friends, her family. They tell her, you're crazy. Do not go there. <laughs> Please, Ada, do not. It's a death sentence. And she's like, all right, well, I'm going to get a second opinion. So she goes to a local female shaman. and she tells her that, yeah, you're going to make it to the island, but there is danger and death ahead. So be watchful around knives and fire. And that's all I'm going to tell you. So that's definitely going on the con list for Ada. She's still very unsure. But she's told that they have also hired a few Inupiaq families to come along with them so she won't be alone. 
And she's like, all right, well, that makes me feel better. And again, I really need the money to get my kid back. So she decides to do it, despite so many, as we said, red flags. Um, and of course, this one thing that made her feel better, the group of Inupiat families that were supposed to go with her. So she literally makes the decision based on them. And then she shows up to the boat and they're not there. She's the only one. So I don't know if they were never hired to begin with, or maybe they, you know, decided against it. Maybe they listened to the shaman who warned them that death and destruction was ahead. We really don't know, but they are not there. Well, it's like when everybody's like, hey, let's go do something. And everybody's like, I'm down. And then really only one of your friends is down. It, yeah, it, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like there's only one person who actually cares to show up because they care about you and they act, or they care about themselves and they actually want to do it. And everybody else is like, that sounds fun. Yeah, we should meet up. Yeah. And you're like, you don't want to meet up. Yeah, exactly. You're a liar. <laughs> so um, she gets there and she's obviously freaking out and she wants to back out. She's like, you know what? I'm not going. I won't go. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. Like the families that we're picking up, they're, they're in Siberia. Like that's like the whole thing. Like we go to Siberia, we pick up the families and then we go. Melagna. They say, don't worry. You're totally not going to be the only woman and the only enough person on this journey. And as Mari likes to say, that was also a lie. <laughs> <laughs> that was also a lie. You gotta, you gotta accentuate that also. <laughs> no, Mari's very calm. Uh, uh, disagree. <laughs> disagree. He's insane. He's insane. Um, so they set off towards Wrangler, Wrangler Island in September of 1921. Ada is 23 years old. They are given some money, some supplies, and a little gray striped kitten named Victoria, who they call Vic. Well, because it's the Victorian era. Apparently, this is a thing. Like, people gave boats cats for good luck. I didn't know that. I mean, they've got to eat the the mice that gets in their grain. You have to have a boat cat. I guess, but like... No, that's super important, because all the rodents are going to... Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That was a this, full, this spoon full really spell, betrayed me. Spell. Um, no, yeah, boats are gonna have rodents regardless. So just like you have a farm cat, you have to have a, a boat cat. There we go. So because that was guess sick. what's so important? <laughs> guess what's important? Food. Cats. Um, cats is what I was going cats for. Cats are important. Um, so yeah, so there's a little kitten named Vic. I have a question for you. Every yes. time your cat sits down, are you like, you're so beautiful? hundred percent. Me too. We literally put a new, like, beautiful Victorian chair yes. in our dining room. Yes. From Rose Mom, mm-hmm. who unfortunately passed away recently. And it's so gorgeous. And I was like, <laughs> my first thought was, I can't wait until I come home and Fran is napping there so I can take photos of her in it. I mean, it's absurd <laughs> for your secret Instagram. For um, my ads, absolutely. No one will see it. Besides me. <laughs> I, I have always thought that it's great, but I, I'll be sitting in a place and my cat will just sit down and I'm like, Jake, is that the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? They're gorgeous. Beautiful. And he's like, Allie, you were made for cats. Made yeah. for them. Yeah. Because made, he doesn't see it. He doesn't see it. Meanwhile, the dog is like lying there with his little, like, uh, like legs open, <laughs> legs tongue open, out. Legs so inappropriate. Like me on the rug. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the cat is so regal. I just can't. I yeah. can't every time because they don't care. They're no, only, they don't. It's like the Queen Ashley. They're the best. <laughs> I'm so sorry. They're like literally making t- a pile of tires cool. I just don't think people <laughs> understand what it's like to own a cat if they don't have a cat. Yeah, they don't true. get how great. Uh, 
I'm done. Sorry. Okay. Go ahead. And okay. Ada, Ada, Ada. So there's a cat. Um, <laughs> on the boat. There's a cat on the boat. So, okay. And now the they're like really off for Wrangler Island. Right. Um, Stephenson is like, I'm obviously like making this up, but this is like pretty much what happened. Stephenson is like waving goodbye to them. And he's like, I promise I'll catch up to you in a year. I'll see you in a year. Trust me. Don't worry. The weather's not too bad. And there's so much wildlife there. Like, you guys will never go hungry. I promise. Like, the animals there are, like, coming at you from every direction. Like, there's so much wildlife to catch. Yeah, we're going to eat this cat, huh? So, the boat pulls off a little further. And he goes, oh, by the way, I um, it wasn't, like, 100% approved by the Canadian government. So, I might not be able to pay you. But there's an election this year. So, maybe the new government will approve it. Okay, bye. He doesn't have funding, Allie. He's lying. He's lying to them. And actually, that would have been better. But that's the reason because he did it. This is the whole thing. That would have been better if he even, like, said it while they're leaving to this fucking island. Because he didn't tell them at all that he didn't get funding for this trip. So they think they're doing this extreme, like, expedition reality yeah. show thinking they're going to get a paycheck. Yeah. They think they're going to get a good paycheck. And, like, promised them a lot of money. And, like, for Ada, who, like, thinks she's going to literally get her son back. Like, this is, like, this is her whole world she's putting. Like, she is doing this for her son. Tragedy. Tragedy. They, of uh, of course, you know, make the said pit stop in Siberia. But then they tell people that they're going to Wrangell Island. They laugh at them. (laughs) There are, of course, no Inuit families who will go with them because they know it's too late in the season to go to Wrangell Island, and it's a fucking death sentence. So they finally get to Wrangell Island on September 15th. The ship, the Silver Wave, drops them off, so they're not even taking their own boat. Like, someone drops them off there. So they really have no way of leaving. And they just leave them. They leave them. There's no Uber to this island. Nope. They promptly plant the British flags. They they literally gave them British and Canadian flags. And they were like, just, you know, see what feels right when you get there. So they plant their British flag and proclaim that this now belongs to the British Empire. The white men all high five and celebrate this fantastic, pointless accomplishment while Ada breaks down and cries. Did they bump chests is, as well? Uh-huh. They did everything. I mean, Jock Jams was on 24-7. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And Ada is like, let's get Fuck. ready to rumble. They're rumbling. Ada's like, I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> yeah, I mean, now she's there alone. Alone. Completely alone. So they set up their camp, and they quickly settle into a good routine of exploring during the day, collecting scientific materials, whatever that fucking means, and whatnot, and then coming home into a delicious home-cooked meal prepared by Ada, which is unfortunately generously salted by her tears. Um, oh, poor baby. I know. Poor Ada baby. is just so distressed all the time, and she just wants to go home. And then winter starts to really set in because they get there at the end of summer. And there's no fall. No beautiful leaves. It's well, just summer and winter here. There's, like, four places where fall exists. Yeah, and we're one of them, so... Um, Come see our so, leaves. You can stay at my man's. <laughs> Just kidding, it's never our team. Um, so winter starts to really set in, and the animals start going away. And it becomes a little harder to hunt. And then the men start to realize that none of them actually know 
how to hunt. You and mean they're useless? And only one of them knows how to shoot a gun. Why did we invite these men? Who knows? It's an island. Can we fish? Or is it ice water? Um, there is water around to fish, but they were told that you really need to bring a skin boat. Which is like a boat with like, you know, a layer of like animal skin on the bottom that helps it with the horrible Arctic waters. So it's like a blubber boat. Exactly. Mm -hmm. They did not listen. They brought a wooden boat and it promptly was destroyed by the ice. It shattered. It absolutely shattered. Mm. So they can't even fish. And this starts to put more pressure on Ada because she's having to like use more of the rations and she's like we don't have that much you know like what do you well it's because when as soon as men fret they're like but what were you doing all this exactly like i was doing everything thanks so her mental condition starts to get worse she cries all the time she stops working she will just run off into the cold and they have to go find her and bring her back she develops a really strong fixation on crawford And a really strong fear of night, becoming convinced that he's trying to kill her because she, like, saw him with a knife once. And she's like, that was the shaman. He told me to beware of knives and he has a knife, so he's going to fucking kill me. She's really losing it. And the men try everything they can think of. They sweet talk her. They deny her dinner. They make her sleep outside. They tie her to a pole. Nothing works with this woman. And, I mean, that makes sense when you try all the worst things. Why would you tie her to a pole? Why would you make her sleep outside? I, why, why not would you comfort her? Why, why would comfort you her? not feed her? It, Allie, they tried sweet-talking her. That was just, quote, sweet-talking her. Oh, would they say, hey, honey? Honey. Could somebody go outside and catch her a snowflake and put it in a jar? <laughs> and then give it to her as a gift. So what they don't realize is that she has actually developed piblocto, or Arctic hysteria. So this is a mental condition that afflicts many First Nation Arctic women, especially in the winter months. And especially when they go to an even colder environment than one they're used to, like Nome, Alaska, to Wrangell Island. So this is what they call a culturally bound disorder. So it's something that it's a very specific thing that only like happens really in like Inuit women. So it's described as an abrupt disassociative episode with four phases. So there's social withdrawal, there's excitement, there's convulsions and stupor and recovery. So women can experience violent or dangerous behavior followed by amnesia. Like, this is, like, no fucking joke. And, of course, they just think she's so in love with Crawford that, like, she's losing her mind. And really, she has, like, a real condition. (laughs) Like, and they're, like, doing all the wrong things. Well, what's the name of the condition that happens to you when you're on, like, a ship for a really long time? Like, a pirate ship? I don't know. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, something fever. Cabin fever? Cabin fever. (laughs) 
It seems a lot like that. Like this is very, it's a local illness that happens in one place and it happens specifically because of the environment you're in. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly what this sounds like. Like she is having Arctic cabin fever. Yeah. Well, and I think it's Arctic cabin fever, like combined with seasonal affective disorder. Of course. Because like there aren't exactly sure what causes it, but they say like, you know, it's things like lack of sun, extreme cold, and like the desolate state of most villages in the regions, which like again sounds to me like cabin fever. Like I'm stuck in the same place. I literally can't leave. There's no escape. And seasonal affective disorder of like, oh my gosh, it's even colder than I'm used to. It's darker. It's really dark. Because one thing you have to know about winter around the Arctic Circle is that it is lacking one very important thing. Sunlight. Sunlight. Vitamin C. Between November and January, where she's at, Wrangell Island, is in complete darkness. Six months of it. There's no light. Yeah. No light at all. There's no new day. It all seems like one fucking long, terrible day. I mean, I don't know how anyone doesn't have Arctic hysteria. Like, it sounds fucking horrible. Living that far north or that far south must be so difficult just because you are either in almost constant sunlight or almost constant darkness. Exactly. There's there's nothing to denote the end of a thing. No, there's not. Thankfully, the darkness eventually did subside and her symptoms started to go away and she started to feel like herself again. Um, And she starts working really hard. So it's the summer of 1922. Spirits are up. Again, it's summer. It's really fucking cold there still. But spirits are up because Stephenson and the relief ships were due any day now. So, like, they had had a really rough winter. Um, Not a great spring. Like, it's now, you know what, it's now summer. And they're like, okay, great. Like, we got here in September. Like, they should be here, like, August, September, like, pretty fucking soon. They wait and they wait. But he never comes. Because what they didn't know is that Stephenson didn't have enough money to pay a ship or a crew to go get them. And no one will lend it to him. So the family of all these crew members are, like, asking him, like, what's going on? When are you going to get my kid? And he's like, okay, fine. I'll go save your stupid kids. So he goes to the Canadian government and he's like, you know, I think this might be in the you know, phase where it's like a humanitarian issue. <laughs> so can you go get these people? And so they fund a small relief crew on a ship called the Teddy Bear. That is the name. Uh, but when they get there, there's an impenetrable wall of ice blocking them from accessing the island. And the Teddy Bear was just not big enough to break through the ice. So they tell Stephenson, like, sorry, mission unsuccessful. Stephenson replies, well, okay. I'm sure the worst they're experiencing is homesickness. So we'll just wait until next summer. It's been a year. It's been a year. Wait. And like, they're like just getting by. Like I only told you about like her Arctic hysteria, but like it's not ideal living in the Arctic, obviously. So meanwhile, on Hell Island, everyone is tired. They're injured in one way or another. And they're very hungry. Animals for hunting are scarce. They, again, did not bring a skin boat, um, so they couldn't go out of the water to fish or kill walruses or anything, and they had already gone through most of their rations 
because they thought that the relief ship was coming. So, like, well, if we go through it, like, it won't be that long until the relief ship is coming. Oh, are we going to start being cannibals? Is this no, 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 no. There's no cannibalism. Okay. Yeah. I was getting and really actually, nervous. <laughs> this is so fucked up. It's one thing that Stephenson told their families. He goes, well, the good thing is they are stranded on an island, but it's an Arctic island, so there are no cannibals out there. Like he you, told that to their family. Except maybe us. Except maybe us. Like maybe we'll become cannibals. So they get into the phase where they're eating just scraps, like walrus flippers that they find washed up on the shore. They're like sucking on the bones of exactly. animals. Exactly. Small Ugh. birds, old stale bread. And even though all of them have back pain and ulcers, like one guy's ulcer in his jaw bursts at some point. Uh, disgusting. Just all sorts of stuff. No one is worse off than Knight because nobody knows that he's got fucking scurvy. I know. That's like another pirate disease. Another pirate disease. (laughs) So he is incredibly weak. His body is in constant pain and his teeth are falling out. Mm. And of course, the cure for scurvy is fresh meat and fruits and vegetables, which they had absolutely no access to. Knight and Crawford eventually, like, take sleds to go out and find some food, some bigger game. But Crawford gets really bad frostbite. Knight scurvy is getting worse and worse. The dog's pulling the sleds because they do also have dogs to feed also. Um, They're too weak. The sleds keep tipping over. It's a mess. So they come back to camp, and they're like, okay, obviously Knight is too weak. So let's send, you know, the three... Like, most fit men, so Gail, Crawford, and Fred should go out since they're in the best shape. And Ada will stay here and care for night. So they're like, go out, find some food, find some help if you can. Come back. Get to Siberia. Just do anything you can. Find Santa Claus. Exactly. Return. They don't want to go, but they eventually are like, okay, we'll take the risk. And they head out into the negative 50 degree weather. (gasps) To find literally anything that will help them. I mean, it's a barren wasteland. It is. And unfortunately, shortly after they leave, a massive blizzard hits. And all three men and all of their remaining dogs just die somewhere out on the ice. So it's Ada and Knight alone. Down to two. And he has scurvy. He has really bad scurvy. And she's alone now. Yep. Okay. Meanwhile, if you're wondering what Stephenson is up to, he has announced that he is quitting the expedition. Oh, my God. (laughs) He said, you know what? I'm going to retire from exploration, and I'm going to dedicate my life to just educating people about the Arctic. He quits. He's going to leave. He quits without doing any work. He's going to leave these five people out here alone. Yeah. And now three of them are dead. Mm -hmm. I hate it. Okay. And back at camp, everything is up to Ada. She's collecting drinking water. She's chopping firewood. She's setting traps for animals. She's heating up sacks of sand to keep Knight's feet warm. And she's rotating bags of oatmeal around in his bed so he doesn't get bed sores. But everything she's doing is close to camp because she's really afraid of going out into the Arctic alone, which is like fair because she doesn't know how to hunt she doesn't know how to shoot a gun and the gun that he has is heavy and large and she can't pick it up and she's afraid of it like but he tells her straight up like if you don't go out there and find me some fresh meat like I am going to die so she is under immense pressure right now so she's like okay I have to figure out something it's like just 
cannot deal with that gun right there. <laughs> so she goes, all right, I know that the fox are curious about the traps, but they're too smart to fall for the traps. So she makes a plan to do a double trap. <laughs> she hides behind a rock near the trap, and when they come to sniff it, she jumps out, hits them with a giant stick, and snaps their neck. Oh, I mean, she's being sly as a human. Exactly. So now she's killing, like, hella foxes. At least one a day. Which I've never killed a fox, but I feel like it's hard. Um, so she's doing all this, but he's having a little trouble eating the meat because his teeth are falling out. So he's really not getting as much as he should be. Um, he gets a little better, but it doesn't last for too long. It worsens. His condition worsens again. And now Ada's getting sick. Her face is swollen to the point where, like, she can't even open her eyes. And, like, Knight is getting really angry at her because she can't use the gun. So, finally, she's like, fine, I'll use your stupid gun. So, she builds a gun rest to prop up on her shoulder so she can shoot the gun bazooka style. Oh, my God. Builds it out of nothing. I mean, where is she getting this? Snow. She made it out of snow. So she does never kill like a full on walrus, but she does start to kill like a ton of seals. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of fat in seals. That's good oh, for yeah. you. So she's getting bigger prey. She's getting more birds. It's still not helping Knight a ton. Um, well, he needs to shut up then. Yeah. She ends up building a skin boat. I mean, she builds a boat by herself, a skin boat. And again, she's never done any of this shit. She was not raised with her people. She was raised, basically, at my alma mater, Open Bible Christian Academy. <laughs> so, she's doing all this. She refortifies all the tents with driftwood. She makes herself new parka and boots with all the reindeer fur, because she's killing reindeer all over the place now. And she even learns how to use the camera to take selfies of herself around the campsite to make sure that they're still documenting the trip as much as they can for Stephenson and his research. She better get she's fucking doing paid. the actual most. I will kill. But she's also getting real sick of night bitching at her. He is constantly criticizing her. And she like writes in her night. She's like, what does he expect from me? I'm doing everything for him and the workload of four grown men. <laughs> but I mean, after months of this, and I can't even imagine how difficult this is. Knight finally succumbs to his scurvy, and right before he died, he did finally thank Ada for all she had done for him, because he's like, okay, I'm sorry, I was an asshole, you're the realist. And he says, stay strong. She's alone, mm -hmm. in the fucking Arctic, on an island, with nothing. Yeah. I hate every second of it. She writes in her journal, the date of Mr. Knight's death. He died on June 23rd. I don't know what time he died. Anyway, I write the date just to let Mr. Stephenson know. Again, taking the most diligent notes for this man that has abandoned her to die. She can't quite bear to bury him yet, so she puts his body in one of the storage tents. She, like, props up all these things around him because he, his body is decaying, and she doesn't want any animals. To, she, like, literally just can't even fathom burying the last person she knows. So now Ada is completely alone. But thankfully, help is finally on the way. So a man named Harold Noyce heard of the mission, which the papers had officially declared a disaster, and he decided that it was time to step in and help. 
So he gets a boat and a crew together with the caveat that Stephenson pays for half of it. And he was like, I guess fine, I'll pay for half. And on August 20th, 1923, a crew member finally spots Ada on the shore, waving her arms. And they pull up to the shore to take her home. Ada had been on the island for two years. And she had been completely alone for three months. Knight died three months before this happened. That's absurd and scary. So the first thing that she did, like, she was like, oh my gosh, thank you for coming. I'm so happy to see another human. She goes, how are the boys? How are they? How are Gail and Crawford and Fred? And they're like, what do you mean? She, she's like, the boys, like, they're not with you? And they're like, they're not with you? Ada thought that they had made it and sent help. So she literally finds out in this moment that everyone she knew from this trip had died. And she was truly the only survivor of this horrible trip. She fell apart. She broke down crying, fell into Noyce's arms, and she was just like, just take me home. Everyone, like, everybody you lived with for the last two years died. So they survey her campsite and they are amazed at what she has done. They said she had mastered her environment so far that it seemed like she could have lived there another year. Although the isolation would have been a dreadful experience. (laughs) She's like, actually, no, like me having to sleep with a fucking gun propped up on my shoulder because of polar bears. That was a bad experience. Like what? Me living in a tent next to a dead body. Yeah, that that was was a bad bad experience. experience. So they bury at night on the island and Ada, you know, had been collecting all of these furs and seal skins that, you know, and like she had been collecting them. She's like, okay, great. I can like actually sell these. So Noyce says like, oh, okay, great. Like I'll buy them from you. So there were 16 skins that he bought from her. They were worth over a hundred dollars a piece. Damn. He gave her $28. (gasps) What an asshole! I know! I hate it. In today's money, those furs and skins would have been worth over $23,000. And she got about six grand for it. Another thing Noyce discovered was the collection of journals from the crew. He read them and he was shocked at the incompetence of every man on that trip. And he was really upset that Ada was the only woman. So he took the journals, uh, like he was like, oh, I took them to like protect Ada's reputation because like people will probably think she was like a sex worker, just right, you know, whatever. Alone, yeah. But I think really he wanted to hide them from Stephenson because he knew that Stephenson was at fault, and he didn't want the journals to make it seem like it wasn't his fault because if Stephenson got a hold of them, he could have just buried them and been like, no, 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 there's no record. And this was really good, a uh, really good call, because the first thing Stephenson did was call a lawyer to prevent any of the victims' families from selling their life rights to make a movie or write a book. He also goes to Ada, and he tells her that she's not allowed to tell her story. Bullshit. And I want to say that with also the caveat of he didn't tell any of the men's families that they had died. They found out by reading the newspaper. And remember, they, I hate this guy. He's the fucking worst. I hate him. And the families they they had contact with, they had been calling him and writing him 
sending fucking telegrams. He's like, trash. He's total trash. Absolutely. And then, of course, he's trying really hard to get his hands on these journals. But the newspapers are all over the story, and they, of course, immediately blame him. <laughs> he has all sorts of excuses. He starts to blame the men, and he says things like, well, you know, everyone says that they, like, the three guys who died out on the real Arctic, you know, like, they went out to find food. But, like, that's not really true. They were just bored. They were very well fed the whole time. Ugh. But thankfully, Noyce has the journals, and he takes them to the press and, like, tells them, like, the real story. And Ada is hailed as a hero once people read it and see what she did. So she goes home a hero. She finds out that her ex-husband has drowned and is dead. And she's like, thank goodness. Right. That guy was the worst. Perfect. Get right um, and her sister has had a baby and named it Ada after oh, her brave aunt. She was paid for the journey, but not nearly the $50 a month she was promised. She was paid a lot less. And then mix that with the fucking bullshit deal she got on the seal skins. <laughs> But she's just happy to be home. She finally had some money to take her son to the hospital. They moved to Seattle together so he can get medical treatment. But once the story breaks, she is constantly hounded by reporters, which she really hates. Stephenson eventually takes everything to court. And he is eventually granted the full rights to the whole story of Wrangell Island, including Ada's story. That's ridiculous. He writes a book. Makes, twists it to make him look good. Makes a shit ton of money off of it. Gives none of the money to Ada. And then the public turns against Ada. And him and Noyce start to twist the story and say that Ada starved night to death. And she was just a sex worker who had slept with all the men on the ship. and. They were like, yeah, we, like, they just start spreading lies about her. And they're like, oh, when we found her, she was, like, super fat. So we know that she had been hoarding all the food for herself. And they completely ruin her reputation. And I, my guess is that Stephenson spread these rumors so that he would never be, that so that she would never be listened to. And his money and his money and his reputation will be protected forever. Mm. Because if no one trusts this woman, if he establishes her as a untrustworthy figure in the media then he set he and it, it it works i mean he wins a ton of awards he's listed as one of the greatest arctic explorers of all time he had plenty of money for the rest of her life and just never any repercussion repercussions for what he had done ada does marry again she has another son but they get divorced and she becomes dirt poor again. And this time both children end up going back in the orphanage. She was like, can't like she was screwed out of so much money that really could have helped her. Um, she eventually does find work as a reindeer herder, but that's about all we know of her later life. Her son Bennett never quite got over his health issues. And he died in 1972 at the age of 58 and Ada followed about a decade after, mm. passing away in a nursing home on May 29th, 1983. Wow. At the age of 85. Wrangell Island is now a Russian wildlife preserve, and unbeknownst to Ada and the crew colonizing it, or whatever the fuck 
sevens and was trying to make them do, um, it had always belonged to Russia. They never had any shot claim to it. They had no claim. They had no claim. So Stevenson was, did none of his research. No. And I know, it, it, so it was all pointless. None of the things that they did would ever, like, he sent them up to, to die for no reason. Like, they would have never had any claim. And But it sucks because, like, he's still in history books Ugh. as an Arctic explorer. And I know it's a horrible way to end her story, but, like, I just think sometimes you need a sad ending because what these men did to her was so fucked up and she still survived despite it. You know, mm. I, so that's the story of Ada Blatchett. Wow. <laughs> I was like, how do I end this on a positive note? And I was like, I don't think I can. The girl who made it out alive. <laughs> yeah, literally like that's it. That's crazy. So, <sighs> I mean, we have to compare these women. We do. Um, in a little segment we like to call just the two of us. I mean, these girls wanted to do something. They did. They didn't pass up on an opportunity to go big or go home. No, absolutely. But I think they both also had um, had different but similarly rooted reasons. You know, I think that they both did it for very personal reasons. Like Ada was like, I need to do this for my son to get my family back. And I feel like Christian was like, I need to do this to be a voice for people like me who get overlooked in the news. Right. Yeah, that's true. And, like, I like that they were both born in cultures that aren't necessarily, like, the king-majority culture, yeah. but and yet ended up, like, okay, I'm going to be able to speak English. I'm going to be able to interact with these people. I'm going to be yeah. able to represent people in my very own way. Well, because they both had a Western education, right. which I thought was so interesting in both of their stories, because we see, like, this, like, kind of weird missionary school in Nome, Alaska mm -hmm. versus like, I mean, she's going to like, it seemed like pretty rooting nice school rooting in schools, England, yeah. you know, like very different worlds, but the same basic job of being like, we want you to speak English. We want you to do X, Y, Z. And like, you can do with it what you can. Where, yeah. Like, and as adults, they were both in the, um, I'm going to die out here world. Oh my gosh. It's like, yeah, yeah, if I go through with this, if I go do this, I could literally die. I mean, they both survived very scary situations. Like, I imagine that both of them had feelings at multiple points where they're like, I'm not going to, like, this is the one thing I'm not going to survive at this time. Mm. You know, because like Ada had already been abandoned on the ice and she walked back. You know, like she knew she could survive, but sometimes no matter how hard you know it in your heart, like Christiana has probably been a ton of times like, oh, I've been under bullet fire before and I survived, but maybe this time I won't be so lucky. It's a do what you can menta mentality. Like, I feel yeah. like they're both like, I'm going to do what I can. Yeah. Maybe I'm not going to change the Bosnian conflict, but I'm going to talk about it. And, yeah. and I feel like Ada was very similar and like, maybe I'm never going to be a millionaire, but I'm going to get my son back. No, exactly. And also like, she was also writing about her and documenting her experience because she was like, that was my assignment. And I feel like both of them had assignments, you right. know, like Christian has a ton of assignments all across the world, obviously. And she does them. She's like, I'm here to write about this. Like maybe I'm going to put my own spin on it, but like, I'm going to fucking write about it because that's what I was, you know, hired to do. Right. And it's what I'm good at. Right. And then you have Ada who's literally on the brink of death and starvation and 
she's like, okay, but I have to get a picture of the new kitchen that we built because it's important to the study. Right. And it's like, oh my gosh, girl, like you do not have to Chill fucking the study. Like, please. Like, <laughs> but then but, later in life, they both had like this issue with reputation. Oh my god! It was like yes. people, regardless, wanted to tear them down yeah. for what they were actually doing and discredit them. Right. And I just I think that happens to a lot of women, unfortunately. Like people love to go after their reputations and. I just, it's hard because, like, Christiane Amapur, it was a situation where people are going after her because, like, maybe she, like, misspoke or used, like, you know, didn't think about the word, like, didn't choose her words correctly. But you literally had Ada who wrote down everything she did. Everyone else wrote things about her that were true. But one of the things I, I, I didn't mention was that, so when Noyce had kind of, you know, given over the journals, he had literally taken out the pages where it described all the positive things that Ada had done. Which is like, why the fuck are you doing that? Like, what is wrong with What's you? What's the point? What even? is the point? And it it's kind no of, sense. right. And it's kind of like difficult because like we have, like we're in an age now where like Christian is existing in a sense where like, we know what you said because you said it on TV. We have it recorded. So like, there's like there are obviously ways to like manipulate things, right? But, but we've like, seen it. You've seen it. Seen everybody's it. seen it. Exactly. That. It's public information. Whereas, and she has a public platform. Like people fucking listen to her. Nobody was listening to Ada. None. And nobody had any information that like pages had been torn out of diaries. Her journals weren't published. Like you know exactly how she had written that. Yeah, well, even Knight was like, pissed off till he died. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like everything. Like, and, the, and I think that's, like, the the root cause of it is that, like, people didn't want to listen to her. Mm. And it makes me crazy that, like, she was just totally disregarded and ignored. And, like, I'm glad that there are people like Christiane who exist now that people listen to. Well, and Christiane even, like, mentions it. She's like, this is a male-dominated field, which is crazy because storytelling, if we go back to indigenous cultures, is a female dominated oh, yeah. craft mm-hmm. so it is it is another thing in a sense that has been colonized by men to absolutely take, to take the skill of storytelling which is a horrible yeah and they're pretty fucking bad at it because yeah. they <laughs> they lie to make themselves sound better exactly and i also just want to talk about publishing salaries because i thought that was so incredible that you ended on that mm-hmm. of like she's like we need to talk about specifically money because if we don't talk openly about it, then, like, nobody else will know that, like, mm-hmm. one person is making more than the other and they shouldn't be. And, like, I feel like... And make no mistake. Yeah. People have found a way around it. Oh, yeah. They will say you're getting paid the same and give men bonuses. Oh, Because yeah. a bonus is a check that you're not going to... It's not your salary. Right. It's a, it's a bonus. So, like, you don't have to tell people, like, well, I make, you know, $50,000 a year, but I got a $10,000 bonus. And it's like... So you make $60,000 a year. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> That's almost $1,000 extra a month. Right. Like, it, yeah. And I mean, the people, like, the people whose salaries need to be published, like, for them, $60,000 a year is a joke. Yeah. They're like, That's pathetic. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there are people making, like... 500000 to a million dollars a year making a $50,000 bonus. Yeah. Like a whole salary's bonus. Yeah. And that's why we need to have 
open discussions about it so that like people doing this same work as other people can see the inequity like and and have open conversations about it because it literally like the culture that we have created about like we don't like to talk about money it's like well you know what we Why need to not? talk about it because the people who don't like to talk about it are the ones that fucking have it mm. or the ones that don't like yeah yeah it's very weird it's like a very weird like middle class is comfortable with talking about money yeah but like everybody else is like hush, hush. yeah exactly and yeah. it's like because then, like, you'll never know if you are being fucking screwed over if you, like, or if you there isn't interesting. an open conversation. You know what's interesting? Mm-hmm. I think possibly it's the opposite of that. I think very wealthy people are very comfortable talking about money mm. amongst their circles. Yeah. And then uh, are shaming middle and lower class people. Because one thing I always thought was interesting is, like, my... My friends in very wealthy families mm-hmm. would have discussions over dinner about the stock market. I didn't have that as a kid. Oh, no. You know, not. they would talk about what we're investing in and yeah. what's my salary. Meanwhile, I never knew as a kid what my parents made as money. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because not. they were taught, shh, 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 don't talk about it. Yeah. So I almost think it's like a privilege of the wealthy to talk about money. And yeah. now that everybody else is catching up, yeah, people are worried about that. It's so true. It's so true. Yeah, you're right. Ugh. Ugh. But these women, I, I mean, I mean, they're survivors. They're in a man's world. I mean, who's not in a man's world? But <laughs> we all, uh, um, yeah, I'm in a Ninja Turtle world. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, yeah, it's incredible. I thought they were both really cool stories in such different ways. They're yeah. like, as much as they're both like survivors and adventurers, I didn't see as many parallels as I thought I would, which yeah. is okay sometimes. No, it to- but I also think that in a weird way, they did have a lot of similar general experiences, which mm. sometimes feel like the greater experience of being a woman. You know what I'm saying? Right. It's like not feeling heard, surviving scary situations. Like those are something that we can attribute to, For unfortunately, sure. most women, uh-huh. you know, feeling gypped out of fucking money. Right. Um, you know, it seemed to me like those were things that actually could have applied to probably any of the women that we cover because they are these broad social inequalities that have been afflicting women. And in this case, specifically like women of color forever. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, we need to fucking talk about it. And let's, or we already did. We did. (laughs) We did. We did. Uh, Are you ready to toast these women? I'm ready. Allie, who would you like to toast this evening? So I want to toast women with opinions. I think having an opinion is very easy, but sharing it is very hard. It's very common for people to sit in a room and wait for everybody else to share their opinion before they do. Mm. Um, And you kind of wait because you want other people, you want to feel validated by other people's opinions first. So it's very scary to go first. So voicing your opinion is hard, especially when it's on a world stage. And you need to know a lot and you need to connect a lot of different things and represent a lot of different people and a lot of different cultures. And as a woman, you also have to tread very lightly so that you don't seem like a shrill bitch. So (laughs) somebody who has power enough to like, fill up a room full of men and be like, I'm sorry, I disagree with you. That's incredible. So cheers to people like Christiana Amapur and people with opinions. What do you have for me? I want to toast um, the survivors. I just feel like there are... 
I'm a so. survivor. Sorry. Fuck, I love Reba. Um, <laughs> my friend Robert and I have an ongoing joke about our love for Reba. So I found a picture of her holding a banana cream pie. Mm. And I just like wrote like, happy birthday, Robert, on it and sent it to him the other day. Perfect. <laughs> and also like, I'm a survivor. Oh, you yeah, gotta get chill. on Jesse Child. Chill. Okay, okay, okay. Tell me. So I'm going to toast survivors because I think that sometimes we think that the only people who can label themselves as survivors are people that have experienced the absolute worst. Like, Ada's for sure a survivor. But like, so are plenty of women who go through like really shitty things. And like, I don't want people to downgrade their survival just because someone else has had it worse because... Similar to like having open discussions about pay and money, I think that we should have open discussions about like postpartum depression. Exactly. Things that people are going through that are really fucking tough. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we're going to force people to talk, but like, you know, things that other people can connect on because then it's like you're not a lone survivor like Ada was. You're a group of survivors and that feels a lot less scary. Mm. Absolutely. Is your thing with Jocelyn? Hello? Yeah. Okay. For sure. Maybe it's my headphones. I wonder if I think it's my headphones. Maybe I think I need to get more. Maybe not. Cheers. Cheers. (laughs) Okay. Are you ready for some promo, promo, promo action? I'm ready. Allie, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? So I've been reading this cute young adult series called The Lunar Chronicles. And it is like a dystopian, futuristic, four book fairy tale series. A bird just flew into the window. Wow. Oh, that, now there's a stink bug inside. I yeah, I'm fine with that. But the, the bird the flying bird into really the window. The bird really flew into the window. That, that was a... He's was drunk, a, maybe. That was a choice. He needed to get an Uber. Okay. So, okay. It is so cute. And so what I do a lot of times when I'm looking for a new book series is I Google um, book series that should be made into television shows. Mm. So that's what I did. And I found like this list. And The Lunar Chronicles was a big one. And they are in order Cinder, Scarlet, Cress, and Winter. Okay. And they're supposed to be Cinderella, Little Red Riding Hood, Rapunzel, and Snow White. Okay. But it's like this futuristic version of them. And it is done so well that when something happens, I forgot that it was supposed to happen. Right. So, like, when Cinderella, she doesn't lose her shoe, she loses her foot. But when it happens... I didn't expect it to happen, but then it did, and I'm like, oh, yeah. And then when Rapunzel's Bobo, like, gets blind, I'm like, oh, yeah. I forgot that he was supposed to get blind. It didn't feel kitschy at Mm. all. And, like, at some point, Snow White, or Winter in this book, ends up, like, in a glass case. And you're like... How was this woven together in such a way that I know the story, but I couldn't see it coming mm. a masterpiece that sounds great mm. it is it's really nice because i like fairy tales yeah i like young adult fiction it's really easy to read it's futuristic and you just it's happy like young adult fiction ends happy <laughs> it really does um so i just really suggest it the lunar chronicles if you just want like a cute young adult fiction to like weave yourself through and and like harken back to old Grimm's fairy tales that you've always loved mm. perfect what do you have I'm going to recommend a beverage. <laughs> so Diet Coke. <laughs> uh, no, that's terrible. Um, so Trader Joe's sells <laughs> this sparkling iced green tea with grapefruit and mint. Okay. 
It is incredible. It has no sugar, so it's not sweet or anything. You know, there's nothing added to it except for like natural like grape and mint fruit flavors. And so mm-hmm. it's like very like simple tea, but it's just very like softly carbonated and it is the most refreshing thing. Um, and I, it's my new upset. Like I'll actually go and like, I wish they sold it by the case. Like, and I'm not a person that like buys beverages. Like I pretty much drink water and coffee at home mm-hmm. and wine, but this <laughs> is something different. It's right. so delicious and I love it. So if you're in Trader Joe's, pick some up because it's worth the hype. all right well that's it for us thank you for joining us um go find us everywhere we're on all the internets um but mostly we want you to rate and review us (laughs) on apple Podcasts. that would be the best um yeah and we we also we we love you we also have a patreon and we have merch. Um, we have merch. On Teespring. So, yeah, find us everywhere. Get our things. Uh, help us continue this podcast. <laughs> and we want you to never forget that well-behaved women... Do the dishes before they go to bed every uh, night. That's, like, when I'm really in a good spot. Yeah, every night. But they also really do. They We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.